0: You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Today on Preaching Source, we have Dr. Kyle Walker, one of our professors here at the School of Preaching at Southwestern Seminary. And Dr. Walker is a specialist in the history of preaching. His doctoral dissertation in preaching uh, was on uh, Southwestern's first professor of preaching, Jeff Ray. And in that dissertation, he also uh, did a broad sweep of the history of preaching, especially Baptist preaching. And so welcome, Dr.
1: Walker. We're glad to have you here today. Well, thank you, Dr. McCarty. It is a privilege to be here and I am very grateful for the opportunity. All right, I I'm going to start off with a challenging
0: question. <laughs> the question is what were the greatest centuries for expository preaching in the history of Christianity? And you, uh you know, that's a broad sweeping question, but could you boil that down and uh and especially sometimes in preaching, the history of preaching, we talk about the high 5 centuries uh, but uh, what were the greatest centuries in the history of expository preaching?
1: Well, that's a great question. The history of preaching is something that fascinates that fascinates me that uh, I've had a great interest in, and I believe it's something that can be very instructive for preachers of today. Uh, a couple caveats to keep in mind when we speak of the history of preaching that I'll name, one of which we might say is that... Um, You could argue that after Jesus, everything was downhill after that. So uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. But uh, another caveat is what John Broadus said in his history of preaching, and that's the history of recorded preaching is only a small part of the history of preaching. Uh, That's something to keep in mind as as we discuss. History definitely favors those who write and what we have recorded, but uh, it's fascinating to look back over as much as we can of what we have. But when it comes to evaluating the history of preaching, when one looks back over the course of the last two millennia, it's obvious that there has been great preaching in every century. However, when one looks more closely, one sees those centuries really transform into what would call we, we could call mountain peaks or highs and lows, times when great preaching ebbed or, or flowed. Um, and when I talk about great preaching, what I'm referring to as I'm speaking of biblical preaching, I'm speaking of preaching that is faithful to the biblical text and that exalts Jesus Christ. So when one looks at those centuries and one sees those mountain peaks or those ranges that represent the highs, there are, uh, and what most historians would refer to as, five centuries that represent those highs. Uh, And in short, those centuries I would start with the first century, uh, the century of the apostles and the early church, and What David Larson, helpfully, when he gives some life stages to each of these centuries or periods of preaching, what he calls the birth of preaching. You move from the first century to the fourth century, being the century of the church fathers, the patristics, and what one could call the infancy or the childhood of preaching. And then there's the 13th century, the scholastic age. You had the monastic orders, the preaching friars, and uh, what we could call the adolescence of preaching. And then the 16th century is, is the 4th century uh, that we could name as, as one of the high points of great preaching for obvious reasons—the Reformation, uh, preaching coming of age, and the torrent of biblical preaching that, that came during that time. And then finally, uh, the 19th century, entering the modern period, specifically referring to, to Europe, to Victorian England, preaching coming to adulthood in what some would argue was the Zenith century. Of, of preaching. So, those high five centuries, again, are the first, the fourth, the thirteenth, the sixteenth, and finally the nineteenth.
0: Okay, Dr. Walker, could, could you uh, help us identify, say, two or three great expositors from uh, each of those eras of preaching, uh, each of those high five?
1: Absolutely. This is where it really gets very interesting to me when you get to dive into the specifics and details of what we're talking about in each of these centuries. Uh, The first century, the first of the five, uh, is pretty obvious when we're going to drill down to the apostles and the preaching in the early church, and the apostles essentially preaching Christ from the Old Testament, uh, and of course involved in the writing of Scripture and the canonization of the text. During that time, uh, that contribution laid the foundation of of having the biblical text uh, and continuing to preach Christ and the documentation of that as we have recorded in the book of Acts. Then we move to the fourth century, really the latter part of the church era of the church fathers and the patristics. And there are a few names that stand out, especially in the east with Athanasius and Chrysostom. Uh, just to speak of Chrysostom for a moment, uh, one of the contributions he has is really the, the sound, more sound hermeneutic of the school of Antioch that rejected most of the allegorical approach of the Alexandrian school. Uh, Of course, Chrysostom is known for having an incredible vocabulary, I mean, to be nicknamed Golden Mouth as he stood in the pulpit to deliver God's Word. He was strong on application, giving very specific application from the meaning of the text, Uh, and then he actually preached verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. And of course, he wasn't the first to do that. Really, Origen is attributed as the one who began doing that with greatest consistency, but of course, his interpretation was very allegorical. Uh, and Chrysostom helped change some of that. So, even John Broadus himself claims of Chrysostom that he has never had a superior. Broadus looks back over the history of preaching and, and holds up Chrysostom undoubtedly in his mind as the prince of all expositors. But then you move to the West in this fourth century, and you have Augustine and Ambrose, a couple names that pop out. Augustine, unfortunately, did fall into some of the allegorical habits of his day, and yet he was a man committed to preaching the biblical text. In fact, Charles Dargan reports that many of Augustine's sermons were expository lectures, if you will, on books of the Bible, uh, that he's called the greatest preacher, uh, the greatest Latin preacher, that is. And of course, you can't speak of Augustine without bringing up the fact that, that you, he could be attributed to, to producing the first textbook on homiletics, on Christian doctrine. And his book four of that work is, is the integration of Christian preaching and classical oratory that we have benefited from to this day. So, that's the first and fourth century. You get to the 13th century, and the situation is pretty dire. I mean, if you put this in the life stage of the adolescence of preaching, preaching is on life support during this time. The situation is dire, sacerdotalism is rampant, superstition abounds, the allegorical approach is really at its highest. But you did have a few bright lights that stood out during this century, uh, primarily through the work of the preaching friars and the monastic orders, so names like Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic stand out, Uh, Alan of Lille is another one. So what you had with these preaching friars is a renewal of biblical scholarship that occurred in the 12th century, and it's fascinating that always with the renewal of emphasis on the text and biblical authority, biblical preaching always follows. So sure enough, what you had with them was, a, was an outburst of preaching, and with that, when it comes to sermon form in the history of how we do preaching, what we also see is that more attention was, giving, was given to sermon form during this time. For the years leading up to this, through the centuries, sermons typically took the form of, of an ancient homily, which is a conversational approach, a verse-by-verse running commentary of Scripture that did not have a formal sermon scheme with it per se. And yet with the monastics and their preaching orders, more emphasis was given to sermon form, and that developed with thematic preaching in the centuries that followed, uh, first appearing in the 13th century. And then what you had was hundreds of manuals on theoretical or thematic preaching that came about. And so that's where Alan of Lille comes in in his book on the art of preaching, and it provided what some call the first formal definition of preaching in the 1,200-year history of the church. So he emphasized the need for sermons to possess a more formal structure uh, based on a single verse rather than an extended passage, as a homily would have done. And so what you have, when you boil it all down, is by the end of the Middle Ages, a new sermon form characterized by formal structure uh, based on a single text or a theme really emerged. Now, I, I, I emphasize that because Broadus claims, and I believe rightly so, that he says so far as the as the form of modern preaching differs from that of the early Christian church or centuries, the difference had its origin in the Middle Ages, with this emphasis on theme and structure. So that was the 13th century and what came out of that. The 16th century, with the Reformation, oh goodness, the the recovery of biblical authority again uh, produced a torrent, unprecedented, of biblical preaching. Names come to the surface that are household names among uh, homileticians—John Calvin, Martin Luther, Ulrich uh, Zwingli—preaching during this time that followed the recovery of biblical authority, biblical preaching, simply became a necessity uh, out of that uh, conviction returning to men serving in the pulpit and leading the churches. So, preaching dethroned the mass, and the pulpit assumed the highest status in these Protestant churches. Uh, The sermons were given in the vernacular of the people, and uh, preaching was seen as a pastor's primary responsibility again and recovered in that way. Finally, in the 19th century, uh, some names that stand out. There's there's really a, several here where I'm speaking most specifically in the 19th century of Victorian England and Europe. Names that you could mention go beyond that, but several that we can name that were in that uh, geographical location as they were preaching, but names like Charles Simeon, Phillips Brooks, John Broadus, B.H. Carroll, Charles Spurgeon, Alexander McLaren, G. Campbell Morgan, F. B. Meyer, uh, John Henry Jowett, and on and on we could go of names that really did some of the exposition, as we look through history, that was at its finest, uh, and that Charles Dargan is the reason why he says, hey, this was this was the century of preaching at its zenith there in the 19th century.
0: Now, Professor Walker, you you mentioned Jean-Claude, and uh What that calls to mind is here in the School of Preaching, whenever we are administering comprehensive exams to a Ph.D. candidate, we always ask them about the history of preaching, and we can just about guarantee that the candidate's going to be asked about Jean-Claude, Charles Simeon, and John Broadus. Uh, So, uh, let's just pick those three names. Could, Could you tell us a little more why these three names are especially important to the history of preaching, expository preaching?
1: In short, Dr. McCarty, one could say, and I will explain this, but I'll, I'll put this up front, is that these three names have more to do with why Southern Baptists preach the way that we do than any other names. and I believe that argument can be substantiated. You've heard tongue-in-cheek that Southern Baptists preach three points in a poem, right? Uh, that's not universally the case, but uh, that is a reputation that Southern Baptists have developed historically for for reasons. And those reasons have to do with these three names. Uh, and when we talk about these three names and how they influence Southern Baptist preaching, what we really mean is we're talking about how they've influenced sermon form, sermon structure, a method, if you will, of of delivering a sermon. This, this influence that they have as it has transformed the way we form or structure a sermon can be charted uh, throughout history. And in fact, this is where David Larson's taxonomy on sermonic form through church history is very helpful. He actually draws the lineage out, pointing out the classical homily from the early church. So just think of the ancient sermon form when we say classic homily, lack of structure, lack of, of official sermon form then you move to the scholastic period of the middle ages which you have that birth of a emphasis on form and structure so you have the ancient form which is lack structure you have the more modern form that is very structured but then you have people modifying that and what we get the more modified sermon form from that is credited to Andrew Hyperius and some others like Henry Smith but then traced directly to Jean Claude in his work on an essay on the composition of a sermon that has direct and incredible influence on a, on a man that's well-known named Charles Simeon that is influential on John Broadus and on down the way. So let me say a few more specifics about that. Jean-Claude was a French Huguenot and a, a man who had a strong conviction that preaching the sermon ought to get the subject and substance from the text. And so when he articulated his convictions on preaching, he did so on that, his essay on the composition of a sermon, which Charles Simeon came across, interestingly enough, through a Baptist named Robert Robinson, uh, who was pastoring in Cambridge, where Simeon was located. So Robinson had this translation that Simeon got a hold of, and Simeon really had the lights come on and said, hey, look, here is what I've been trying to do now put down in written form for me to understand and propagate as Simeon trained so many other preachers. And of course, Simeon's influence is best summarized as as he's been called the father of modern evangelical homiletics. What a pillar of Southern Baptist preaching looking back for a man like Simeon. So what's even more interesting is that Broadus says— that Claude's essay on a composition of a sermon was the favorite Protestant textbook for a century and a half. Just think about that. The favorite Protestant textbook for preaching for a century and a half. So Broadus is admitting his own own influence from uh, how this textbook has influenced him, and of course, a great many deal others. Now, to speak of the content of this work from Claude that came through Simeon, uh, a couple of the things that stand out that influenced why Southern Baptists preach the way they do, is that one of the things that Claude and Simeon were advocating was what they called the great secret of all composition for the pulpit. That great secret was to reduce a text to a categorical proposition. Now, that sounds odd, but one, the light bulbs ought to go off. When Haddon Robinson speaks of the big idea, this is where this is coming from. A categorical proposition that is the subject, if you will, of the text, that one is to develop. So one reduces the text to this categorical proposition, and this is the secret that has really been adopted and become a standard-like homiletical procedure among Southern Baptists and Protestants alike. Now, a few other things they advocated besides reducing the text to a categorical proposition, uh, Claude also had four methods that he believed that one could use to naturally treat or develop a text into a Uh, sermon—explication, observation, continuous application, or proposition—and Simeon would take these and produce his 21 volumes of going through the text of Scripture, seeking to apply these methods of how to treat a text naturally. But then with sermon forms specifically, Claude and Simeon said a sermon properly has five divisions, five parts. But then they said, look, two of those are pretty minor. There's really three parts. So when we talk about an introduction, a body, and a conclusion of a sermon, we're tracing that back uh, through them. And That body of the sermon, they said ideally should have three parts, and Southern Baptists almost always have developed sermons with three parts in the body of of the sermon. So when you get down to Broadus, Broadus shaped and massaged this a little bit, where he did not take explication, observation, continuous application, and proposition per se, but what he did do is he popularized the functional elements of preaching explanation, illustration, argumentation, and application, and he took these, popularized them as his way of saying, look, here's how to develop a sermon based on the biblical text. With these ways, here's how you develop it and grow it out of the text. And it's Thomas McKibbins who says, look, Broadus is the one who gave Southern Baptist, gave Baptist the Baptist sermon a distinctive shape through these functional elements of preaching. So, let me kind of just bring this down. Broadus taught a man to preach named Charles Dargan. Charles Dargan taught Jeff Ray at Southern Seminary. Now, Ray taught a man named Jesse Northcutt, a man named T.A. Patterson, a man named Charles Kohler. So let's think about this for a second. Jeff Ray taught approximately 5,000 men to preach in his tenure. I've just named a few of them. Jesse Northcutt, who then taught preaching at Southwestern for years and years, taught approximately 10,000 men to preach. Al Faisal claims that Jesse Northcutt taught more men to preach than any man in Christendom. And of course, Jesse Northcutt authored Steps to the Sermon with Kleinert and Brown, a text used perhaps more widely than any other text to the history of Southern Baptist instruction at our seminaries. So the influence to today is really a short connection point through history, all the way back to where we can trace why do we preach the way we do today? It is a historical answer. Uh-huh. Wow. Thank you, Professor Walker. That
0: uh, That is a marvelous summary uh, of expository preaching and especially uh, how it touches those of us in Southern Baptist life. All right, Professor Walker, you're not only a teacher of preaching and a historian of preaching, uh, but you're also a preacher. So let me ask you in a final question, What what do you think we as preachers can learn from the great expositors
1: of the past? That's a great question. I think there's lots of lessons we could name. I'll try to just boil it down to a few that I think I've personally walked away with as I've studied the history of preaching and how it's influenced me. I think the first thing that I would say is what perhaps John Stott said best, and he said the essential secret of preaching is not mastering certain techniques, but being mastered by certain convictions. When you look at the great exposers of the past, they were men mastered by certain convictions. That's what moored them to doing biblical preaching. When I say certain convictions, I'm speaking of convictions concerning the nature of God, the nature of the Word of God, the nature of the gospel. And so these men knew what they believed, and they were bold, and they did not back down whatever context they were put in to preach the Word. I would also say the great expositors of the past, of course, were men of their day and their times. And so what I mean by that is that their methods and their sermon forms varied greatly you're not going to look at any one of them and say, hey, here's his process. It looks exactly like his process, or his sermon form looks exactly. That's not that's not the case. So, I think that should uh, give us some, some wisdom and instruction on that there's not just one singular method that all the great expositors have adopted. Number two, the great expositors have always been men who used language well. So, they've been men who realized they deal in words, as our dean likes to say here at Southwestern. So, Rhetoric matters. Just think about men like Chrysostom. Think about men like Augustine. Think about men like Spurgeon or even W. A. Criswell, you know, more recently. These men, the great expositors, were masters of words. And they used their skills and they crafted that skill to best communicate the Word of God as best as they could. I would also say the great expositors of the past were men who were mighty in the scriptures. They knew the word well. It saturated them uh, and it's brought us, you know, is that famous line he used to his men in his class to be mighty in the scriptures. It was so true of these men, and that produced light and heat in the pulpit. Another way of putting that that we say is logic on fire. So these men were men who were on fire, the fire of the Word of God burning in their hearts and in their soul, and so that fire was transforming them, and that fire naturally produced light and heat. When they got into the pulpit, that light was the substance of the Word of God they gave but on fire with the heat of the passion and urgency of believing it, being convicted of it themselves, and giving it to the people. Finally, one last lesson I would say is it appears to me that all the great exposers of the past were, first of all, great prayers before they were great preachers. A couple instances that I'll name of that. Charles Spurgeon, for one, you can't read his lectures to my students without walking away knowing this man was, first of all, one who who prayed before he ever got in the pulpit to preach. Um, Spurgeon is quoted as saying, I don't remember spending an hour in prayer, but I never remember an hour that I didn't pray. So Spurgeon himself, you speak of, um, he would speak of his engine room in the basement of his uh, church there in London and the 200-plus that would gather to pray for him as he was in the pulpit. Finally, um, Martin Lloyd Jones, let's take for example more, a little more recent. His wife was asked about her husband's preaching once, and she stopped the questioner and, and looked at him and said, Look, before we talk about my husband as a preacher, you need to understand he was, first of all, a man of prayer. So I would say those lessons, as I look back from, from the fact they were, first of all, men who were on their knees before God. They were prayers before they were preachers. They were men who were on fire, giving both light and heat. They used language well. Their methods varied, but they were mastered by certain convictions, and I believe we can agree with Stott. That's the key to doing great preaching.
0: Dr. Walker, thank you for your uh, contribution to the ministry of Southwestern School of Preaching. here as one of our professors, and especially thank you for being with us here today on Preaching Source. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. McCarty. It's been a pleasure.